Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alpha. And I'm Stephen. And on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast, we discuss how Boris Johnson is still Prime Minister going into recess. And you ask us, what is Jacob Rees-Mogg's plan? So it's now parliamentary recess and Boris Johnson is still the Prime Minister. Alva, you've been talking to some Tory MPs about sort of how he's managed to survive. How has he managed to sort of stagger on this far? And what does it mean about his near future, do you think? Yeah, I think this is like one of the privileges of this job at the moment that you just get to sit with Conservative MPs and just let them walk you through why they haven't sent a letter in. And just the thinking around that and every sort of thing they say, and you know, maybe this sounds like wishful thinking, Alf. And you think, maybe, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just fascinating. Um, I've been really trying, um, I'm more, more so than really ever before with this Boris Johnson thing to speak to the same people really, really regularly to sort of track the mood, especially if you sort of know that there's someone who's been wavering mm -hmm. as to whether to send a letter in, because I think that's a good litmus test. It's so difficult talking about the Conservative Party. And I think that this gets really lost in some of the coverage. Like it's so difficult talking about the mood when there are, you know, over 300 of them. It's, you know, actually talking about that group as though there's a consensus among them and they're all on the same page is often not kind of right. But keeping track of some people who've been wavering has been really interesting because you can sort of see in real time how the shadow whipping operation managed to resonate and all of the other little things that have helped and, and persuaded people. So, I mean, some people didn't even realise it was a shadow whipping operation. They just thought they were having like chats with ministers and they, they were like, I thought something was up. I didn't know if they were, you know, courting my support for Rishi or for Liz or what. And then it was just really clear from who they said it was that it was sort of actually one of Boris Johnson's shadow whips. And I think, you know, they began to plant this idea among Conservative MPs that um, they don't want to give in to a media agenda on this. You know, that it wouldn't be fair or right or what they really want to just sort of give in to a media that's baying for blood is the phrase I keep hearing from lots of people so I think that that must be what shadow you know these shadow whips have been really saying and yeah, it kind of started with that and just feeling like they need to give Boris Johnson more of a chance but then 
he's also like Boris Johnson personally has been really like working on people behind the scenes, which I find really interesting. So several MPs sort of talk quite proudly about, you know, having their one to one with Boris Johnson and just being able to lay into him. And he just, you know, they say what they what, you know, what they think he's done wrong, have a frank chat, he sort of sits back and takes it. They feel better. Who knows whether it resonates, but I think that by feeling heard, it has kept a lot of them on side. And then the final thing is that Boris Johnson has also been visiting some of his MPs' constituencies, and I think they've been picking them based on who's been wavering in particular. And he's essentially been giving people like the old razzle-dazzle. I think this is fascinating, but just like meet a local CEO and be quite impressive and charming and then go door knocking, literally only knock on about four doors, but the local MP actually sees what Boris Johnson has that they think other people maybe don't still have. One person was saying that despite themselves, they were very impressed just seeing, you know, how well he spoke with voters and they just don't feel at the moment like there's anyone else who would have those qualities. And this, that's fascinating because these are the same people who have like a shopping list of complaints who are so frustrated, who say that they just want to shake him and who've been really uncomfortable with so many of the things that have been in the news recently. And even, you know, with the way Boris Johnson has responded, the way he did his Sue Gray statement in the chamber, the Jamie Savile remark, same people, and yet they're kind of sticking with him. I find the psychology of Conservative MPs on this fascinating, but it just means that, yeah, we're, we're not at recess and Boris Johnson's position seems kind of stable with the big caveat that I imagine Stephen will want to talk about of the looming police investigation and the possibility of fixed penalty notices for the Prime Minister. That's so interesting. Stephen, do you think that caveat is an important one? Um, it's interesting because as, as, you, as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, are, are the fixed police penalty notices... God, the worst thing about them is nothing can eradicate from my mind my belief that that a fixed penalty notice is, in fact, a fixed policing notice. And (laughs) I feel this is going to become quite embarrassing to me quite quickly at some point. Um, But as you were talking, I was thinking, actually, I used to think this, but I maybe think that it's not because I think you're exactly right that the... Well, one of the problems is that you never want to, you know, whether it's when your editor calls on you or, or, or much less with the readers go, actually, we, we don't know. But we should be better at explaining exactly as Alice is like, there, there are 350 people. I mean, which is like, that's basically, you know, if, if you went to a regular sized like, inner city state school, right, that's basically like the whole of a year. That's like, so you wouldn't say like, well, what's the mood among the year eights? The one like, nation yeah, year the one year, Yeah, the one year eight. I don't know, I, I've spoken... <laughs> My English class seemed to be pretty angry. Yeah, like the English research group. <laughs> yeah, and and that thing is that is actually like it, it's it's a it's a lot more like that. And what you can kind of hope you do is you if you're speaking to the same people during a leadership crisis, you can hope that you have a a representative soil sample. I think the weird thing about recess is that so recess could be a lot worse because because this thing is crucially at the moment right all organisations suffer from groupthink. And basically, the, the sort of groupthink from the Conservative Party, very effectively, uh, you know, I think, planted by the shadow whipping operation. Several people from across the Conservative Party have said, oh, you know, but yeah, before he was appointed, they said, oh, if he's smart, he'll appoint Chris Heaton-Harris. He doesn't sort of tell you what to do. He just kind of like lets you sort of talk things through and kind of goes, like, oh, and, you know, I'm thinking maybe you're thinking this. And they have successfully sort of planted this idea in the Conservative mind that, if he goes now, they're giving in to sort of a kind of like 
you know, are sort of badger baiting and then they'll regret that later. At the same time, the proxies for all of the various leadership candidates have, I think, failed thus far to establish the idea that any of them would be better. And in some cases, they've actually succeeded in raising questions about them. Now, the weird thing about recess is, of course, what happens, and indeed this is actually true every weekend in the Commons, right? One of the reasons why party leaders' position can often rat- rapidly deteriorate over the weekend is people go away from being in this hot house of sort of 300 people. Yeah, they stop being the whole of year eight and just become like an individual little little kid with their family and their family's going... What are you doing? <laughs> it was obviously having loads of parties, yeah. And so it it feels possible to me that over the recess, loads of them will go, oh, wait a second, this is a terrible idea. I don't know about you, Apple, but I feel like in my conversations, basically they've looked at the alternatives and gone, oh, I'm not sure. And so what they're doing subconsciously or consciously is just looking for excuses not to have to pull the trigger. Yeah, it's kind of like, okay, uh, I have big doubts about this, big doubts about that. Maybe if we just put it off magic will happen you know either you know one of the leadership contenders will do something that reassures them the government i mean the weird thing is there's this implicit assumption and i'm definitely plagiarizing this from a point someone made in my twitter mentions there's this weird assumption that at some point competence will break out then you know then then now boris johnson is on his third chief of staff and this chief of staff is having to you know double job with his already existing you know two quite difficult jobs Competence will will break out. The polls will turn around. The big issues that they are struggling to deliver on. I mean, you know, so someone who is very much on manoeuvres for one of the other candidates. Yeah, Oliver Dowden said at Cabinet, you know, we need to focus on the, you know, the four important things that matter. Cost of living, small boats, two other things that currently escape me. But this MP, you know, WhatsApp them, WhatsApp me having just got out of this. That's a real Stephen classic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, we'll miss those. Yeah. And, and just said, well, we're not, they said, what, so what we're saying is our master plan is to pivot from the parties to four things that we are failing to do. <laughs> um, but, the, but so much of the party, I think, has kind of gone like, oh, you know, maybe it'll be fine. I kind of feel like maybe the, maybe it'll be the local elections, maybe there'll be an unexpected by-election. But I think, assuming that the polls and the, you know, stay where they are, and seeing as they do seem to have settled down, right, I imagine the economic stuff will continue to, to be a problem. But if we assume that the current political position sort of obtains until May... Maybe it takes May for people to go, oh, my God, this is mad. Maybe because there are actually comparatively few Conservative councillors up this time. They're only defending 900 seats. They'll go, oh, well, it wasn't that bad. We only lost 200 or we only lost 300. And they'll kind of keep going until another system shock. But it does feel like they're just doing that classic thing a party does where it kind of goes, oh, we've we've all accepted our own shared version of reality and we're not going to let anything intrude into it. And I think, therefore, I think he has... Yeah, he's stabilised his position unless some new external shock happens. Hmm. I think it's interesting from what you're both saying from the MPs that you've been speaking to have been, who have been trying to sort of justify their decisions to themselves uh, for not sending a letter of no confidence yet and just seeing how things play out. The, the sort of the, the mindset behind that seems to be 
let's just wait and see if this story goes away or please God, can this story please go go away, which is something that I've picked up as well. And it's really clear that this story just isn't going away. I mean, you could see it at PMQs on Wednesday. You know, he just about got through all the questions and then suddenly people were asking him about the newest party picture with the bottle of Prosecco in it, you know, and he was dragged back down to having to, to go into sort of defensive mode. You can see it in the announcements that we've had, like the huge levelling up white paper, you know, barely scratched the the surface of the of the top of the news bulletins the cost of living package that Rishi Sunak announced okay we talked about its flaws uh, on the podcast but still you know that should have been you know a big shiny spending commitment that that's barely registered i don't think and then the latest thing which is ending the self isolation law which was always going to lapse in March anyway, a month early. That's usually something that should, that, you know, pe- people who have no interest in politics at all would be texting me about, you know, asking, you know, is this a good idea? Why are they doing this so soon? Or isn't it great? I haven't had any of that. So I think all of these big shiny announcements that they've tried to make on policies that are nothing to do, <laughs> nothing to do with sort of defending themselves against Partygate haven't had the resonance that they'd hoped to have. And I think that is a sign that this story just isn't dying. I think that's going to be the big challenge for these Tory MPs who are wavering and thinking, well, you know, it will probably go away. We might do something, you know, we might show some competence at some point. I don't think it it, it will. And there's always a danger during recess and we- and weekends, like you say, for people to go back, speak to their constituents and realise actually this is the thing that's still at the front of people's minds. I was at a gym class last night and I could hear the class next to mine talking about Boris Johnson and laughing about him because of the party. So it's just, it's just one of those things, isn't it, that occasionally you get a scandal that bubbles up and then and then goes away and the politician breathes a sigh of relief but this doesn't seem to be one of them and the things that they're trying to announce that are positive let alone the stuff that they're they're failing on like the small boats policy just aren't cutting through so there doesn't seem to have been very much success with operation red meat or whatever you want to call it but there also doesn't seem to be very much success with the actual priorities that that they want to boast about yeah i mean i'd be interested in you speaking to the same mp's that you've been speaking to after recess and seeing whether or not anything that they've heard from their constituents has sort of changed their calculations i think it's a bit like bungee jumping she says never having gone bungee jumping never <laughs> never would but you know like if you die you know diving into a large body of water from a height i feel like that's the sort of thing you either do immediately or not at all because if you stand there on the ledge for too long you freak yourself out and it just becomes like harder and harder and harder to do and you start overthinking it. I kind of feel like that's where Conservative MPs are because the longer they linger with this, the more they're thinking about what the succession might look like and what the longer term plan for the Conservative Party is. And I feel like my conversations have moved a little bit further forward on that where people are taking a slightly longer view and thinking that this is not the right time to change leader and I also think that that's probably Liz Truss's calculation which is why she's not sort of posturing to succeed Boris Johnson right now I think like maybe Rishi Sunak would have done better if he'd moved two or three weeks ago but he hasn't and then I think that he's maybe just a little bit too tied up with Boris Johnson now I think there's this feeling now among conservative MPs that if you had a leadership contest now you could either then have a leadership election you could either have a general election immediately when people are still angry about the parties Mm -hmm. or 
you end up having someone in position being like slowly corroded by this argument from Labour, which they would inevitably make that that prime minister doesn't have a democratic mandate and they become more and more unpopular. All these things of our own cost of living, the impact of various decisions would just get worse and worse. And then that new leader would just sort of limp on until the next election really, really weakened. And so I think, you know, I, if you were Liz Truss, you'd probably look at, that, at this situation and think it's not in my interests to us Boris now I'll wait and if you're Rishi Sunak it does look like he's bottled it maybe he's completely lost his moment you know I think he thinks that like this un- unpopular policy he sort of you know gets that pain out of the way first and then if he does you know tax cuts then he can be popular again and then that's a better time to move but it doesn't seem like that'll be the reality so now that basically now that they have stood on the ledge and had time to think about it, even though they were so close to getting rid of him, I think they've pulled back a little bit. And the longer they let that carry on, the longer, like you say, they will be more and more associated with Boris Johnson's leadership. Yeah, I mean, so first, I mean, as a member of the vertiginous community, I would like to thank you, Alva, for that little word picture there <laughs> in my mind. Um, but you're exactly right, right? The, the new kid in his very good cover story in this week's New Statesman uh, has someone saying, you know, well, Rishi could resign to, you know, you know, essentially going, look, he could have been leader if he'd resigned tomorrow. He's not going to, and that therefore he's probably not going to be leader. Now, that view may not be correct, but it is um, a view that I think anyone who speaks to Conservative MPs has heard several times. Yeah, there's a piece, um, yeah, in the Huff Post, you know, by, by journalist comparing it, you know, saying, you know, is he David Miliband? You know, who never took his chance, and therefore it never came. Whether it has damaged him fatally, right? Who knows? I mean, in 2014, we were all talking about how Theresa May's leadership um, hopes had gone up in smoke, and they turned out to be quite quite fine. But, but you know, I do think he's had quite a, a bad month in terms of it. This trust has sort of deep but very, very narrow support in the parliamentary party at the moment. Um, so she, of course, will have realised, look, I'm not going to win it if I go now. And also she's been a loyalist, so it's her, you know, like, why would she do any of that that damage to herself um the thing we haven't talked about yet of course is the um the not quite a reshuffle and one of the things about the not quite a reshuffle is that it involved a sideways move or a demotion for um for mark spencer now mark spencer is currently under investigation for having um you know passed on um, Islamophobic remarks to Nuzgani, very popular backbench MP, former minister. Now, why is that the case? Yeah, and that is something several Conservative MPs have, you know, kind of gone like, what's going on with that? Well, the reason why that's the case is the Prime Minister is far too weak to to sack anyone. I, I, I find it really hard to conceive of a situation in which that report cannot be a moment of deep pain for this government, because it's either going to go insufficient evidence and upset allies of, of a fairly popular backbench MP. It's either going to go sufficient evidence and cause a problem within the government, but there is no safe place to stand other than what you would want to have done, which is go, unfortunately, for entirely unrelated issues, this guy's all not in the government anymore. No story. But he could not be in the government anymore because Boris Johnson could not afford to sack anyone at this this particular point. And, and that kind of speaks to the bigger issue, right? Why have they got this slightly mad mad policy on energy, you know, based on the idea that energy prices are going to fall. Why are they, you know, moving away from net zero, something which, because, yeah, the polls are bad now, but they would be even worse, right? I was talking to a more senior, you know, a, you know, a veteran, which is obviously our polite way of saying, oh, someone's been in Parliament for more than 20 years. And they were saying, you yeah, know, look, we've got a real problem now that, like, that green boat 
they said they said actually in my constituency said that green vote you know some of it is traditional left of labor protest vote said but actually it comes from all over if it all transfers to labor as it has in pretty much every by election they said i'm going to have a real problem and they said at the moment one of my really useful talking points is i go yeah i like caroline lucas too and it's thanks to her that both labor and the conservatives have the same net zero target don't write in labor people yes there is there is a slight difference of time frame but you know if they get to a point where they can't say we have the same net zero target, that does make their lives politically more difficult. And this is the problem. Once you're weak as a prime minister or a party leader, everything gets worse because you can't take the necessary actions to save yourself or your party. But yeah, as Alva says, to return to the horrible metaphor, they have looked at the briny abyss and gone... No, I think I'll take my chances on the land. Yeah, and it's a real danger with the moving away from net zero stuff just ahead of the May elections because all it will take is a phrase like green crap mm. from the Cameron era for that to be on every leaflet in those green or mm. uh, Lib Dem or Labour facing <laughs> facing um, councils. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dangerous path to go down and it does reflect the weakness of Johnson as a man because that's one of his one of his areas of policy that he is actually quite committed to. And then I suppose just the the other question mark or the big caveat on all that we've just said is the way eventually that police investigation could result in uh, Boris Johnson personally having to pay a really hefty fine and ha- and having been found to bro- to break the law. That's on some front pages today. Mm. And I don't feel like that has, you know, the possibility of him being found to break the law having, uh, you know, um, being given a fixed penalty notice. I don't think that that's changing the minds really of people I've spoken to. But again, as we've both been saying, it's really hard to take an accurate soil sample. And it is on you know the front page of the eye this morning that Conservative MPs would be prepared to move against him if he was found to break the law because that would just be a step too far. I, I don't really know if that's true, but Boris Johnson is being interviewed by the police for this investigation and the police press release does make it quite clear that the people who are interviewed although it's not guaranteed people who are interviewed for this kind of thing are normally issued with fixed penalty <laughs> notices so we kind of already know what's going to happen and so that, that that could be another thing that just pushes people over the edge hello it's alva here this is just a reminder that as a podcast listener you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Ask Us. So we have a question from someone called Blake today. Thanks for writing in. What is Jacob Rees-Mogg's endgame at the moment? There was talk a month ago of him having a shot at the leadership, but he's been very loyal to Boris Johnson recently. He's no big fan of the government's agenda, two years of COVID restrictions and tax hikes on the horizon. Why is he working to keep it afloat? Is it just fear of a truss, hunt or Sunak government? I thought this was a really interesting question. Um, I don't know what what you guys think. Yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? Because it speaks to... um I mean, you know, um, the sketch writer over the critic, Rob, Rob Hutton, who's having a – actually one of the few people who seems to be having a good crisis right now, has written lots of wonderful things. But one of one of his is kind of, you know, Boris Johnson's weird power is his ability to get other people to destroy themselves. Because <laughs> it is true to say that the slightly strange thing about the Conservative leadership election, and this is true in most internal elections, right, it makes more sense to think of um, candidates as having functions rather than ten- – right? so in a Conservative leadership election, there is basically broadly going to be a candidate from – the party establishment, right? The role that Theresa May had in 2016, Jeremy Hunt had in 2019, effectively a candidate broadly drawn from the existing front bench and the existing cabinet. There is a candidate from the faction on the outs, yeah, like which hopes to hopes to return to prominence. And then there's broadly usually a candidate from the party's left, from the party's right. Now, in some contests, a candidate can do double duty. And in order to win, you basically do have to do at least two of those two of those groups to get into the to the final round where you've got a puncher's chance among among the members. But what we kind of know is is that the right of the party doesn't have a nailed on candidate at the moment because of the questions about small boats, the sort of feelings that the Home Office is not not across that issue in large parts of the parliamentary party. So lots of people, indeed myself included, are going, Well look, you have someone who's the darling of the conference floor, who speaks these people's language someone who's doing well on his own terms, instead deciding to kind of double down into this, it would be great if he stayed. Now, it is true, as, as this question, uh, you know, very smartly alludes to, right, that, that Jacob Rees-Mogg was only in the cabinet because he was a wholly owned subsidiary of Boris Johnson, right? Big supporter of him in the leadership bid, financially, politically, uh, yeah, ultra loyal. And there is a perception that he, you know, ultimately, if Boris goes, he, he goes too. I don't think that is true because his organisational importance on the Conservative right means that he will continue to be an important person to have on side for most configurations of possible party leader. So I think it's actually a bit for him that he is someone who sees his role as to kind of hold the, yeah, hold this particular project together, as well as, of course, that everyone wants to keep their cabinet. But he is ultimately a massive Boris Johnson loyalist. You can tell that in this reshuffle, right? He's one of the people who's been willing to have his his role dismembered to be given a non-job in the cabinet office in order to facilitate this change that the Boris people knew they needed to make, which is to bring in a chief whip whose reputation whose reputation and relationship with the backbenches wasn't wasn't sort of utterly um, you know in the mud. 
Yeah, and actually what's really interesting is even when you speak to people in the party sort of from the One Nation wing who would be horrified by the idea of a Jacob Rees-Mogg-led Conservative Party, they will say, you know, like, you know, his image is not what we want the Conservative Party to be associated with and that kind of thing. But they will also say how courteous and nice he is. So I do, and, and you know, we heard that from Thangham Debonair, who used to be his, his uh, opposite number before he was reshuffled. She said that as well. You know, you couldn't ask for a more courteous opposite number. I actually interviewed someone a while ago when I was doing sort of a mini profile of Jacob Rees-Mogg who ran against him in his seat, North East Somerset. He was sort of obviously picking loads of holes in his former opponent's campaign, but was saying, you know, like, he's really liked by the constituents there. And it's, you know, it's not just a case of people tugging their forelocks and thinking that he's just, you know, a member of the aristocracy and they should be reverential towards him. He's actually got quite a good reputation in terms of his character. So I think I think you're right. He wouldn't be someone who'd be finished by Boris Johnson being finished, I don't think, perhaps for that reason. It's interesting, though. So someone close to Jacob Rees-Mogg was speaking to me about this before I knew that we were going to get this question but on the day of that reshuffle and they were saying and I just couldn't work out if this was just spin or not that this is quite a good move for him because actually it moves him from the leader of the house role where he had to stand up every Thursday in front of the House of Commons and would inevitably say something embarrassing (laughs) and instead he kind of can take a step back from that and do you know and I, I, I you described it as a kind of non-role Stephen but you know from his perspective can get his teeth into a tiny bit of a policy area in a project that he's really committed to and I was just a bit and in my head I was a bit like yeah sure but it's a demotion isn't it um but but actually but like maybe that is true that um that this is a more comfortable role for him and it plays to his strengths a little bit better you're exactly right Anusha about the the importance of courtesy right in a parliamentary democracy right being nice to your colleagues is just a really important it's a good career move. yeah i mean it's a good career move it's a good career move <laughs> in the wider world but even more so <laughs> i mean and yeah the most obvious recent examples right is, is in different ways why did theresa may become conservative leader in 2016 and jeremy corbyn become labor leader in 2015 because they were nice to their colleagues. There was no other member of the campaign group of of Labour MPs who could have got 35 nominations in 2015, in large part because for loads of MPs, you know, both his near neighbours or whatever, they'd have some kind of like, oh, when I was new and no, I didn't know who to hire and I was on the, you know, like including people who very much did not share his politics. um, They'd go, oh, you know, Jeremy, you know, turned up at the 11th hour and did a raffle and spoke to everyone and, you know, and it was a, a massive lifesaver. Ditto with Theresa May. You had loads of people going, oh, I needed a fundraiser. And, you know, and it was there was this horrible, you know, kind of effectively, you know, carbonized chicken tikka masala at the fundraiser, which no one wanted to eat. And it was a bit of a disaster. But she turned up and she made some jokes. She made a great show of like eating it and going, you know, thank you very much to the donor who'd put it on. And, and you know, and I just really appreciated it. And now, now, Many people listening to this will go, uh, come on, aren't there quite big ideological issues that we'd like MPs to care about? Yeah, maybe. But, but you know, ultimately, at the margin, that is why when, um, when you had a large group of MPs effectively going, well, George Osborne's not standing, David Cameron stood down, um, you know, Boris is detonated. That's why so many of them turned their grateful eyes to Theresa May. That's why Jeremy Corbyn had the numbers. And it does mean that in the next leadership election, if someone who's not on the right of the party is making eyes at the right of the party, 
And Jacob Rees-Mogg says, you can trust this person, they're sound. He starts with that bank of goodwill. So, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I think you're exactly right not to write, here, write him off. I mean, yeah, it is true to say that it's better for the government not to have um, him as leader of the House because I, it is an image of the Conservative Party that does not do well for them. And putting someone as leader of the House does mean that they are more likely than other people to be on the, the six and the ten. But equally, right, the you know, I mean, the cabinet office is is going to be sort of taken apart anyway. But if you are a pro-Brexit government, right, I think Brexit opportunity is actually a good idea for a junior minister, but that's because I believe that the rest of the government's Brexit priorities damage control. If you think that Brexit is a good idea, I mean, Brexit opportunities is literally just the government's job. You're just like the minister for do ministers do their job, um, which may, may be an uncertain question, but it probably shouldn't be. <laughs> and one caveat I would I would make to what I was um, previously saying about um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, which also you were, you were saying, Stephen, is that there is there is concern. I'm sure you've picked this up too among some MPs about the people who are most prominently defending Boris Johnson at the moment. So Jacob Rees-Mogg, which will be less so now that he's been reshuffled into that role. Like you say, he's not necessarily the best person for the party's image. He's made comments about Grenfell and things like that in the past before that have that have been really really poor um but him Nadine Doris who I wrote about this week who listeners can can go and go and have a read about you know she's been quite aggressive in her media out, outings and also quite sort of generally quite bizarre in her defenses of Boris Johnson Michael Fabricant as well who is sort of seen as this quite eccentric figure too so I think there is there is concern rumbling even among those who are supportive of Boris Johnson staying in his position that that kind of the outriders, if you want to call them that, even though they're on the inside, are not necessarily the most helpful individuals to him at this stage. Well, just briefly, Anush, um, obviously readers can can go and read the magazine this week, but can you give us like a quick flavour of what you make of the Nadine Dorries phenomenon that we have at the moment? Because she's really in the spotlight. And I, I was joking with an, another one of our colleagues in the press gallery, that I'm going to read one of her books, I think, as important research on this political moment. Um, but, you know, she, she is just such a, a kind of fascinating character. And what, do you, what sort of were you thinking of, around her sudden prominence yeah. as his biggest biggest cheerleader? Yeah, I think she's really fascinating as well. And, I, mm. and I'm glad you said you're going to read one of her books because her books are bestsellers. So this yeah. is the thing. I was speaking to someone who actually is her editor in the publishing house that publishes some of her books. And, um, you know, she was basically making this distinction between how Nadine Doris, the author, is seen and Nadine Doris, the politician, is seen. And often reviewers will will be picking holes in her books because they're looking at her from the perspective of not liking her politics rather than not liking her writing, which, you know, you know, according to sales, is popular writing. Mm. So there is a little bit of snobbery, I think, around and a bit of sexism as well. So, you know, <laughs> a lot of people were very angry that I wrote that in the piece. But I do think that it is true. Lots of the criticism of her interviews have been that she's obsessed with Boris Johnson or she's in love with Boris Johnson. Like there's these spoofs going around TikTok that make that suggestion. I think that's quite sexist. And it is something that she has felt in the past as well that she's sometimes targeted because of um, her being a woman and being from a working class background. She grew up on a council estate in Liverpool. And, you know, she always says she only went on I'm a Celebrity to try and make politicians more relatable to sort of her constituents and sort of normal people who would just be watching reality TV. Um, so, you know, I do think that there is a defence of Doris, even though I know she's a very... Um, 
divisive figure. But I actually interviewed her in 2013 over lunch. I used to do this lunch with uh, interview slot uh, in, in restaurants around Westminster. And I re- always remember this lunch because she's such a combative person to speak to that I couldn't taste the food that I was eating. I was so nervous. <laughs> but, she, but it was a really interesting interview. And at the time, she was, you know, this outspoken rebel. She'd had the whip suspended for going on I'm a Celebrity. She had, you know, she was always taking pot shots at Cameron and Osborne. She called them posh boys who don't know the price of milk. And, you know, she was flirting with defecting to UKIP or so it was reported at the time. And now she's like the most loyal cabinet minister you could possibly find. And I think that journey is really interesting. But even at that time in 2013, she said to me, and this was when Boris Johnson was London mayor, she was like, Boris Johnson is going to be the future Tory leader that wins us elections and gets us back into, you know, at the time they were in coalition, so gets us back into a majority government. And actually, she was right about that. And and her loyalty goes so far back. The thing which I think is particularly interesting about Nadine Dorries, which I think is actually also true of Kwasi Kwarteng, right, is you have two politicians who are Boris Johnson long marchers, right? They have been with him for a really long time and they've always been loyal. And they've both actually done good enough jobs in their, well, in Nadine Doris case in her previous post in the Minister of Ministry of Health, and um, in Kwasi Kwarteng's case, obviously she's been at base uh, longer than she's been at uh, DCMS. They've done enough to prove to lots of people that they don't need to have a second life solely as wholly owned subsidiaries. Now, I think it is, I think, objectively true to say that Kwasi Kwarteng does a better job of the. Um, Oh, no, no, I don't accept that the Boris Johnson punching a child shows he shouldn't be prime minister anymore. The child had it coming. Yeah, he d- does a better job of that. You are just going to have to say something stupid or you're going to have to call for the prime minister to resign than Nadine Dorries does. But I think the interesting thing about both of them is Nadine Dorries, um, I think, could have survived the end of the Boris Johnson era because she had surprised a lot of people at the, in, with how she, in the Department of Health. There is no prospect of that now. And I think that's the thing is, and sometimes the the reason why people self-immolate, which I do think her interviews mostly have been, um, is simply that they are true believers, right? Yeah. Um, and that is, of course, the, one of the reasons why he is still there, is there are people in the parliamentary party who are genuine Johnsonites. There is no such thing as a Sunakite and there's no such thing as a Trussite. That might change, but up until the point that it does, that is a really underrated asset that the Prime Minister has. And I suppose, you know, when she was promoted to Culture Secretary, we had a lot of questions from listeners about why she had been promoted um, and wasn't she a bit of a joke figure? It doesn't make any sense. I suppose this is the answer, that this this is why Boris Johnson promoted her. absolutely, yeah. So it makes perfect sense. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by May Robson and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a nice review. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. 
But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.